Would you pray with me? Father, that, that prophecy was penned upwards of 2,500 years ago. And it has come to pass in the last century. It is a stunning um, corroboration and attestation to the trustworthiness of your word. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for this good morning where we have the opportunity to look back and truth be told, uh, play Monday morning quarterback to, or Sunday morning quarterback as it were, to a generation of people that didn't recognize the first return, of, the first coming of Jesus. Lord, we are, we are so uh, blessed to have the scriptures that we have, to have the first coming of Christ and, and so much fulfilled prophecy to look at, the literal fulfillment of so many things that the prophets spoke of. I pray that that would help us to get our sea legs this morning as we look forward because there is much yet unfulfilled and Jesus would be first to tell us that he wants us to be the sorts of people, the sorts of followers of the one true God who are able to know the times in which we live and know what the people of God ought to do. Come now and accompany the proclamation of your word with the empowerment of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we, we trust that you will use this, this word in a unique way this morning for the glory of Jesus, for the ingathering, Lord, of all of your church, and for our mission to be and make disciples of Jesus. Amen. Well, this time I invite you to open a Bible to the gospel according to Luke, chapter 12, beginning in verse 54. The gospel of Luke, chapter 12, beginning in verse 54. If you'd like to use one of the red Bibles from underneath the seats, today's sermon text can be found on page 872 in those red Bibles, 872 in the red Bibles. Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, beginning in verse 54. This morning's text has been a fascinating one to prepare, and I've had now two weeks to get on this, so this, this ought to be good, right? Um, we'll see. Um, I don't think I've ever encountered a text like this one in, in some 13 years of, of pastoring this church. There are a number of, of reasons for that. Um, one of the features that sets this passage apart as we study it in Luke's gospel um, is that we can, I, as far as I can tell, only really draw one point from it. Uh, three verses, there's not a lot here, so I've got one big idea which serves as the main point of the sermon. Um, it's not a lengthy passage, as I said, only three verses. It's not a complicated passage. We'll make pretty quick work of it, I think, in just a few minutes of exposition. What's interesting about the passage is it's rather open-ended in terms of application. I can think of a dozen different ways to go in terms of practical application with verses 54 to 56 in Luke chapter 12. And my hope is that the path I've laid out for us over the next few moments will be of great encouragement to us. First of all, great encouragement to have um, confidence in the authority of the Scriptures um, great encouragement to be living in the days in which we find ourselves. And also great encouragement to be about the business of our mission, to be and make disciples of Jesus and to chase our 2020 vision as never before. 
If there's a single biblical banner that we could fly over this sermon today, I would want it to be 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32 speaks of the men of Issachar, men who had understanding of the times to know what the people of God ought to do. And as we consider the passage in front of us, I think that would be a fitting goal. I think it would be a fitting way to honor our Lord with this text. If we came just a little bit more like the men of Issachar, men and women who know the times that we live in and know what the people of God ought to do. I say that because in Luke chapter 12, verses 54 to 56, this is what we read. Luke 12, beginning in verse 54, he, that's Jesus, also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, You say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Here's the big idea today. Many failed absolutely failed to read the signs of Christ's first coming. And woe to us if we fail to read the signs of his second coming. Many people in Jesus' day and age failed to, receive, failed to read the signs of first, Christ's first coming. They failed to see the cross. Well, woe to us if we fail to see the signs of his second coming. That is the prophecy about his coming crown. In verse 54, Jesus turns his attention from his disciples to the crowd. Throughout the Gospel of Luke and the teaching, we've seen Jesus back and forth between the crowd and the disciples. Chapter 12 has been no different. I imagine Jesus addressing his disciples within a larger throng of listeners here, the group that Luke just refers to as the crowd. So chapter 12, verse 1, Jesus begins by addressing his disciples first. And then in verse 13, a man from the crowd um, calls out to Jesus and Jesus answers him and he makes broader application to the crowd for a while. Then he turns back to his disciples in verse 22. And now here in verse 54, Jesus once again turns his attention to the broader group of Jews that are listening to him at this stage in the, in the land of Israel, the broader crowd. Now recalling that one of the strongest, if not the strongest themes in Luke chapter 12 is the coming judgment We ought not to be surprised to hear Jesus addressing the crowd about interpreting the present time or reading signs of the time. And the way that he gets there is fascinating. Jesus offers two contemporary illustrations to the crowd, signs that nobody in the first century would have misunderstood or missed. Let's let's take a look at them. First illustration is found in verse 54. Look with me what Jesus says to the crowd. Uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 54. says to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. You don't have to read a lot into that. This is not a very complex statement here from Jesus. Um, He's talking about well-known weather patterns in the ancient Near East and well-known weather patterns uh, today in the contemporary Near East. Same weather patterns exist in Israel today. Very little has changed. When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. Lying to the west of the land of Israel was and is the Mediterranean, a massive body of water. And when a first century Jew looked west and saw clouds emerging over the horizon, they knew 
beyond a shadow of a doubt, dollars to donuts, that if there was a cloud coming up over the west, it was gathering up moisture from the sea and it was going to dump it on the land of Israel. Shower is coming and so it happens. There's a memorable picture of this back in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 44, where King Ahab is standing atop Mount Carmel in the middle of a great drought. And he says to the prophet Elijah, Behold, a cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea, the Mediterranean Sea. And the next thing we read is in 1 Kings 18.45, are the words, The heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. That's the picture Jesus has in mind here in verse 24. Maybe the very picture he has in mind. Clouds in the west, you know it's going to rain. Precisely uh, what happens here. And everyone's tracking with him. Now, the second illustration is found in verse 55. Verse 55, Jesus says, When you see the south wind blowing, you say, There will be scorching heat, and it happens. Once again, Jesus is reaching for what would be a perfectly common occurrence in Israel. Winds began to whip up from the south, and everyone knows what's coming next. A very hot day. An oppressively hot day, because just to the south of the land of Israel, in the land of Israel, is the Negev Desert. A little bit further south from the Negev is the land of Egypt, which is found on the continent of Africa. Toasty places, to say the least. Winds coming up from those climates are bound to bring some really warm air. And so Jesus is just pointing out here what everybody who lives in that part of the world, whether in the first century or the 21st, knows. When you see a south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat. So it happens. Lo and behold, it, it happens. And our experience isn't much different here in the Twin Cities. Now, we like to poke fun at meteorologists, don't we? All of us non-meteorologists here, we, we love to give weather reporters a, routinely a difficult time. But the fact of the matter is they serve us fairly well most of the time. And this is what these folks go to school for. Now, Take last weekend. Uh, granted, nobody wanted to see it happen in mid-April, right? We got dumped on last weekend for sure, but they told us it was coming. We knew. You battened down the hatches. I think if Jesus were addressing the Twin Cities today with this illustration, he'd say something like this. When you see October through April coming, you say it's going to be oppressively cold with lots of snow. And so it happens, right? It doesn't take a meteorologist to figure this stuff out. West winds across the land of Israel bring rain. South winds from Israel bring heat. And seven months out of the year in the state of Minnesota bring suffering. (laughs) We know this. These truths are axiomatic. Here's the irony we can still interpret the weather. Yet as clear and as fixed as biblical prophecy is, more fixed than the weather, we struggle to see what's happening. Reflecting on the ancient culture of Israel, John MacArthur observes this, as primitive as their method of predicting the weather was, their ability to discern spiritual matters was worse. The long-awaited Messiah was in their midst They refuse to acknowledge him. Hmm. So Jesus says to the crowds, and for our benefit as well, in verse 56, you hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? 
Well, what's he talking about, the, the present time? I think it's pretty clear that he's referring to the signs, the overwhelming signs that he worked in the Gospel of Luke alone. Um, now, the Old Testament prophets wrote volumes and volumes anticipating this very moment, but I think we could look at things like the healing of Peter's mother-in-law or the miraculous catch of fish, or the casting out of an unclean spirit or the healing of a paralytic or the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on water, the healing of the man with the withered hand, the healing of the centurion servant. We're now in chapter 7. Um, the raising of the widow's son at Nain, the stilling of the storm, the exorcism of demons at Gennesaret, the raising of Jairus' daughter, the healing of a hemorrhaging woman, healing of a boy with a demon and a, another cursed demon-possessed man. Jesus has offered ample evidence that he fits the identity of Israel's Messiah. He's offered that evidence to them publicly. So when he says in verse 56 that they don't know how to interpret the present time it's certain for sure that he's pointing to his mighty mighty works that he never did in a corner and yet i think if we were to step back and think a little bit from a more global perspective about the biblical portrait of the messiah in the old testament jesus would be thinking about some other things that he accomplished as well what we discover is that Jesus fulfilled scores and scores of individual prophecies that taken together are, are an, an overwhelming weight of evidence that he and he alone fulfilled the picture of the one whom the prophets foretold. Now, I want to give you a taste of this, but for the sake of time and space, I've just given you a dozen on the outline in front of you. Okay? I'll merely highlight a handful of them. For example, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 prophesies that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Matthew chapter 1, verses 21, or 22 to 23 confirms the fulfillment. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 prophesies that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Matthew chapter 2, verses 2 to 6 confirms the fulfillment. Jeremiah 31, verse 5 prophesies the slaughter of children at the arrival of the Messiah. And under King Herod, Matthew chapter 2, verses 17 to 18, confirms the fulfillment, the heartbreaking fulfillment. Psalm 22, verse 16, prophesies that the Messiah's hands and feet would be pierced through. This is a graphic depiction of crucifixion hundreds of years before the, that type of torture had even been invented. And each of the Gospels, John chapter 19, verse 23, is representative, confirms the fulfillment. Exodus chapter 12, verse 46 says that the bones of the Passover lamb were not to be broken. Incredibly, speaking of the true Passover lamb, Jesus, in John chapter 19, verse 36, it confirms the fulfillment. Psalm 22, verse 18 prophesies that the Messiah's clothing would be divided up and we gambled away at the hands of the Roman soldiers. In John chapter 19, verses 23 to 24, we see that fulfillment confirmed. Isaiah 53, verse 9, prophesies that the Messiah would be buried with the rich in his death. Rather cryptic prophecy at the time, 700 years prior to the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. Well, Matthew 27, verses 57 to 60, confirms the fulfillment. And it came to pass with Joseph of Arimathea, the leading ruler of the Jews, who says, gave Jesus a tomb of his own, rich man that he was. Finally, the resurrection itself prophesied in Psalm 16, verses 8 to 10, is confirmed in the fulfillment of Peter's first sermon, the first Christian sermon. Um, you say, where, where was the resurrection in the Old Testament? Well, Peter says, Psalm 16, verses 8 to 10. That's confirmed in Acts chapter 2, verses 
24 to 28. What's so astonishing about each of these prophecies is the literal nature of their fulfillment. In other words, what we can gather from these 12 prophecies alone is that when an Old Testament prophet says something is going to happen, it's not only going to come to pass, it's not going to come to pass figuratively or spiritually or ethereally in some way. When an Old Testament prophet says something, it's going to happen, and it's going to happen literally. Let me give you one more example before we turn to maybe present-day application. And it's from Daniel chapter 9. This is not in your outline. Daniel 9, verses 24 to 26. In Daniel 9, 24 to 26, we have the famous prophecy of Daniel's 70 weeks. I was so nervous about preaching this chapter, I gave it to Pastor Seth three years ago. He did a really good job on it. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 26, we have that prophecy of the 70 weeks, and this is what it says. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people people Israel, and your holy city, Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. Now, just to cut to the chase, you'd have to go to Seth's sermon to see all this unpacked but, uh, on the website, but 70 weeks are weeks of years. So one week is actually seven years. Now, the first 69 weeks that Daniel speaks of, which amount to 483 years, I did the calculations on this, 483 years, it begins with the decree of King Artaxerxes um, to head back to Jerusalem for the Jewish people. And we know when that decree occurred. And guess what happens if you count out 483 years from the decree of Artaxerxes? You know what happens? That's the 10th day of the Jewish month of Nisan, A.D. 30. You know what happened on that day? Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem to the day. And at the end of the week, the anointed one was cut off just as Daniel prophesied. You know, that's incredible. In fact, it's not only incredible, Critical is not a strong enough word. The prophet Daniel spoke with mathematical and calendrical precision about the coming and crucifixion of the Messiah. And this is what drove Jesus nuts. The crowd had seen his mighty works. Most of them knew these prophecies, and yet they were being fulfilled right before their eyes, and they were unable to interpret the present time. Daniel saw this 500 years before it happened. They can interpret the weather, just not the arrival of the Messiah. So Jesus says to them, you hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Now, what does this have to do with us today? Let's, let's do some application. How might we take Jesus' words in 56 to heart, verse 56 to heart, and just apply them in our current context in the 21st century? Well, in the time that remains, I'd like for us to consider what amounts to the single greatest fulfillment of biblical prophecy since the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in 70 AD. 
a prophecy that both Daniel and Jesus spoke of. And this fulfillment isn't something that we need to look back into history to see. It's something that's taking place in our very day and time. I'm speaking, of course, of the literal fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, considering the return of the Jewish people in unbelief to their own land. The literal fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy concerning the return of the Jewish people in unbelief to their land. One generation after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus in A.D. 70, a, a, a massive um, uh, expulsion of the Jews from Jerusalem and eventually from the land of Israel altogether occurred as the temple was destroyed stone by stone by Emperor Titus, A.D. 70. The Jews were forced out of Jerusalem, and the vast majority found themselves cast out of the Holy Land altogether, although there always has remained a, a very small remnant in the land, even to this day. But most of them were scattered across the earth, and so it was for 2,000 years. Nevertheless, the Jewish people and many careful Bible students over the course of history knew the prophecies of the Old Testament, the prophecies that spoke of a return of the Jews to their ancestral homeland. So we heard some of them read for us already. Ezekiel 36, 24 prophesies, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Ezekiel 37, 14 prophesies, I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it, declares the Lord. Notice a return in unbelief and then by that a future conversion later. An even greater and more exalted prophecy, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 11 and 12 the prophet says this, In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains from the people, from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. They weren't dispersed to the four corners of the earth at the time of the Babylonian captivity. This is why we know this was a future prophecy that was, uh, began to be fulfilled in A.D. 70 and, and occurred throughout the, the 2,000 years since the life of Jesus on this earth. Uh, finally, the prophet Zephaniah prophesies of the return of the Jews to their land just prior to the Great Tribulation. We read this in Zephaniah chapter 2. Verses 1 and 2. It says, Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Okay, that's the day of the Lord. That's the, the great tribulation. So the prophets prophesied it. The question is, has the church believed it? And I don't even mean in our day. I just mean throughout church history. And the answer to that question is a resounding yes. Now, you need to know where to look. Uh, not every last leader or movement of the course of church history has believed it to be sure. There have been vast sections of the church up to the present day that make very little of these prophecies, paying attention very little to them and denying them altogether. One such church leader was the eminent Hebrew scholar Samuel Driver, who wrote these words in 1906. Listen to this. This doesn't sound relevant. It will be relevant in just a second. Samuel Driver said in 1906, looking at those prophecies I just read, it must be evident that many of these promises have not been fulfilled, and now circumstances have so changed that they never can be fulfilled. 
But like the similar pictures drawn by other prophets, they remain inspiring ideals of the future, which God would fain see realized by his people, and the goal which man, with God's help, should ever strive to attain. In other words, a, a spiritual revival among God's people or something. Samuel Driver wrote those words in 1906, just three years prior to the founding of Tel Aviv in Israel in 1909. He wrote those words 11 years prior to the Balfour Declaration in 1917, which called for a British mandate uh, in support of a homeland to be given to the Jews once again. He spoke those words 42 years prior to the founding of the official Jewish state, May 14, 1948. He missed it. Israel turned 70 this year, and he missed it. Interestingly, Driver lived to see the establishment of Tel Aviv, though he died three years before the Balfour Declaration and 34 years before the founding of Israel. But he missed it. And he missed it not because he didn't live to see it, I'm going to demonstrate to you that plenty of people saw it that never lived to see it. He missed it because he looked at the prophecies square in the face and refused to believe them. Samuel Driver proclaiming in 1906 that Israel would never be a nation again is a little bit like a Cubs fan proclaiming that the Cubbies wouldn't win a World Series and then you die in 2013 three years before they take the title, right? And there weren't any prophecies about them winning, of course, but uh, it's worse for this guy because he looked at the prophet square in the face and denied that it was going to happen. He died before it did. Now, what's fascinating, though, is how very many leaders throughout church history did see it, and they didn't live anywhere near as long as Samuel Driver did, and I hope this will encourage you. Um, as far back as 1668, my pastoral hero, John Owen. John Owen was my hero long before I knew about his convictions about this. Listen to this, 1668. It is granted that there shall be a time and a season in this world wherein the generality of the nation of the Jews all the world over shall receive deliverance from their captivity and restoration unto their own land with a blessed flourishing and happy condition therein. Now listen to this, he hedges his bets. He says, It is only the thing itself that I assert, nor have I any cause as to the end aimed at to inquire into the time or the manner of its accomplishment. The event can be the only sure and infallible expositor of these things. Christians do generally assert it and look for it and pray for it and have done so in all ages from the days of the apostles." Now, I quote that not simply because John Owen is awesome, which he is. I quote that because at the time of its writing, 1668, they are under the thumb of the Ottoman Empire and would be for another 300 years. It was silly to say such a thing unless you have your finger on the text that I just read to you. And if there were time, I would read to you quotes and come to me if you want them from Jonathan Edwards and John and Charles Wesley and William Wilberforce and Charles Simeon and Robert Murray McShane and Horatius Bonar and Charles Haddon Spurgeon. None of them lived to see anything remotely looking like the Israel that we see today. I will quote Spurgeon um, first because I think his voice is respected in this congregation as it ought to be. But secondly, because he spoke these words in 1864, okay? 
84 years before the founding of the modern state of Israel. Listen to this. Israel is now blotted out from the map of nations. Her sons are scattered far and wide. Her daughters mourn beside all the rivers of the earth. Her sacred song is hushed. No king reigns in Jerusalem. She brings forth no governors among her tribes, but she is to be restored. She is to be restored as from the dead. When her own sons have given up all hope of her, then God is to appear for her. Listen to this. She is to be reorganized. Her scattered bones are to be brought together. There will be a national government again. He's not done. There will be again a form of a political body. A state shall be incorporated. A king shall reign. Israel has not become alienated from her own land. Her sons, though they can never forget the sacred dust of Palestine, yet die at a hopeless distance from her consecrated shores. But it shall not be so forever, for her sons shall again rejoice in her. Now listen to this closing reflection. I think we do not attach sufficient importance to the restoration of the Jews. Amen. We do not think enough about it. But certainly, if there is anything promised in the Bible, it is this. I imagine that you cannot read the Bible without clearly seeing that there is to be an actual restoration of the children of Israel. For when the Jews are restored, the fullness of the Gentiles shall be gathered in. And as soon as they return, Jesus will come upon Mount Zion with his ancients. And gloriously, the halcyon days of the millennium shall dawn. We shall then know every man to be a brother and a friend, and Christ shall rule with universal sway. Well, he's moving way into the future there with the rest of that. But, friends, that is remarkable. And remarkable is not a strong enough word for it. You'd think he could have written that only after 1948. He said it in 1864. Spurgeon only lived until 1892. Takes your breath away. Such is the power of biblical prophecy for those who have eyes to see. Well, what does all this mean for us in our day? Well, to answer that question, I'd like to review where we've been and just offer some, some applications and we'll, we'll finish up. Remember the big idea of this text. Many failed to read the signs of Christ's first coming and woe to us if we fail to read the signs of his second coming. Old Testament prophecy in the first century um, Regarding Christ's first coming, we looked at 12 of those prophecies. We could have looked at hundreds of others that speak with stunning accuracy about the lineage and location and the miraculous nature of Jesus' birth and so on. As the Apostle Paul confirms in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, that Christ died for our sins, and what the next phrase is? According to the Scriptures. That He was buried and He was raised according to the scriptures. So these prophecies are a gift for us. They're a gift for us not only because we can look back on them as fulfilled in reality in the first century, but we can also look ahead with them. As Jesus questions the crowds in Luke 12, 56, ought to ring in our ears of every generation of Christ followers, why do you not know how to interpret the present time? That's a good question for every single one of us. Every single one of us that holds biblical prophecy at arm's length. Why do you not know how to interpret the present time? The literal fulfillment of that cluster of prophecies in the first century ought to deeply encourage us as we look forward into our own day, as we peer into biblical prophecy in the 21st century. 
There's much yet to be fulfilled, but it's my firm conviction that over this last century, we have seen the single most miraculous display of God's providence and fulfillment of biblical prophecy uh, since the first century. The return of the Jews to their ancient homeland after 2,000 years of displacement throughout the world is simply impossible to ignore. Not only that, but the resurrection of the Hebrew language. The, the resurrection of the currency of the shekel. All of these things that were in disrepair for 2,000 years. Nearly 9 million Israelis strong in the land today. It was foretold by the prophets. It was the fervent hope of the people of God down through church history. Again, from Owen to Edwards to the Wesleys to Wilberforce to Simeon to McShane to Bonar to Ryle to Spurgeon, none of whom lived to see it happen, but with confident hope that it would. And not because they held a crystal ball in their hands, but because they held the Holy Bible in their hands. That is amazing. And that's the event. Uh, the return of the Jews to the land is the event that will set up all that's yet to come in biblical prophecy, including the, the rapture of the church, the great seven-year tribulation, the rebuilding of the temple, the rise and reign and ruin of Antichrist, and the glorious appearing of Jesus, the binding of Satan, the millennial kingdom, and eventually the new heavens and new earth. All that is yet ahead. And we don't have dates for any of it, so don't ask. Okay? We don't know how close we are to the unfolding of these events. We don't. We are unwise to become date setters. Nevertheless, we are wise to be clock watchers. Clock watchers. And God's massive international hourglass is his ancient covenant people, alive and well in the land of Israel, in the historic land of Palestine. So what does all this mean for us? It means that we need to live in light of what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 40. You must also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect. It means that we need to live with all of our might while we live. You do not know when your last day is going to be. It means that we need to confess in Article 10 of the EFCA Statement of Faith that the coming of Christ at a time known only to God demands constant expectancy. And as our blessed hope motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. It means that just like Owen and Spurgeon and others, we need never be ashamed for a single nanosecond to be interested in biblical prophecy. I heard uh, one of my mentors years ago describe this kind of thing as trailer trash theology. That soured me to biblical prophecy for about 15 years. Well, if it's trailer trash theology, I'm in because Owen was in and Spurgeon was in and Edwards was in. Prophecy, yes, always has its crazy people in the movement. That's, that's true. But I will stand alongside them and be right and look weird rather than be wrong and scoff with others. So last of all, ultimately this means that we need to be about the work of being and making disciples of Jesus. When the Jews asked Jesus at his ascension, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus said, it is not for you to know the times and seasons that my father has appointed by his own will, but you will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And here we are, Mount Minnesota. We are in the uttermost parts of the earth. Be about the mission of being and making disciples of Jesus today this week let's literally roll up our sleeves right and run as fast as we can toward the fulfillment of our vision as well our 2020 vision 
Would that Jesus were to return long before the completion of our plans and our vision as a church. May he find us on a stretch and straining toward the fulfillment of each of these goals. Amen? Amen. Well, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do confess it is easier for us to predict the weather than to trust the prophets. And that is an embarrassing confession. Lord, we are guilty of the same sort of unbelief and minimizing of the words of the prophets as the the crowd of Jews was uh, 2,000 years ago. And I pray, Father, that a morning like this might serve as a pivot for some folks. First of all, Lord, for for those, uh, unlike me, who who were long beforehand uh, thinking through and and seriously searching the scriptures with regard to prophecy, I, I thank you for those in our midst that have this desire, and I pray that you would encourage them, keep their finger on the text of Scripture, and keep them about the mission to be and make disciples. And Lord, for those of us, um, and uh, I would include myself among them, that have come late to this study, um, Lord, help us. (laughs) Help us to see our way through the prophets. We confess they're baffling to us to some degree. Help us to get our sea legs as we look at those literal prophecies that were fulfilled in the first century, And may that give us all kinds of hope as we look forward, as we look around the present scene today and as we look into the days ahead for the fulfillment of literal prophecy. It matters ultimately, Lord Jesus, because when we see these things happen, you say we should straighten up for our redemption is drawing nigh. And we look forward to that day, Lord Jesus, when you return and you will rule and reign until that day. May we keep our heads down. May we be about the mission of being and making disciples. May we be a church that thrives in this community and help us, Lord, to chase our 2020 vision, falling on our face toward the 20 vision. In Jesus' name, amen.